0: going.
1: Oh, well, I was just going to say that back when I was a, a university professor, I, when I wasn't conscious of how I was the one creating overworking and, and where there were schedules that were not all my decision, like when classes start and end, I gained seven inches on my waist and 30 pounds in my first semester. Uh, but now when I overwork, I'm you know very conscious and deliberate about I'm working through these weekends. I'm going to make up for it on the back end by taking all of those weekends that I missed off in a row and go somewhere for a week. And so, because I'm creating the schedule myself, and because I'm measuring my waist circumference and my weight every morning, I, you know, I'm I'm in control now, even when I'm overworking. So,
0: well, we are live at rounding the earth with uh, Chris Masterjohn, who is a uh, who is. It- you specialize in nutrition um, and, and is one of the people that I've met during the pandemic that I would call uh, a good generalist thinker in addition to his expertise. And uh, one of the people, it, it, you know, when, when uh, you read research papers, I, I'm going to say this to, to everybody because I've been asked this question. Actually, I was asked by somebody, uh, by a journalist in, in San Juan last year, um, he said, "You know, what is it that you do when you, you know, go through a research paper?" And I said, "Really, the best way to do it is to get like five smart people in a room who all have a little bit different point of views and expertise.s And if you if if there's anything wrong, you're going to find, you know, you're going to have five different vectors uh, approaching, uh, you know, whatever might have gone wrong. Uh, but today we're going to be uh, discussing uh, vaccine trials. We're going to go back and take a look at the documentation from. Uh, at least the Pfizer trial. But uh, Chris, I'll let you steer. And if you need to share a screen, uh, feel free. I do have the Pfizer trial report up uh, on my computer if we need to take a look at that.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I'll just make the point that my PhD is in nutritional sciences. And nutritional sciences is basically where molecular biology and biochemistry meet the food that you eat. So if you're looking at vaccines, you know, I'm not an expert in vaccines, but in nutrition, we do randomized controlled trials. So the research methods are are very similar. And in terms of molecular biology, PCR testing, et cetera, those are all those methods that are used for viruses, bacteria, uh, vaccines, etc., in are things that we would use in in nutrition research just to, you know, PCR, for example, we would use uh, like if I feed this rat vitamin D, what, you know, how, how do its gene expression uh, the expression of its genes change and we look at PCR that way. Uh, so the, the issue that's new for me with the vaccine trials is something that I came across when I was trying to put together, not trying, I did put together a, a uh, protocol for post-vaccine side effects. And one of the things that I was trying to do in understanding what are the drivers of post-vaccine side effects was to say, well, given that these contain the spike protein like the virus does, but are distributed differently because they're injected into the muscle versus being uh, taken in by by the mucous membranes, especially the respiratory tract. Um, Quick
0: correction. They, they don't contain the spike protein, but they-
1: I they mean, DNA well, DNA it depends which- it. Right. I'm, I oh, misspoke, except it would apply to Novavax, but I, it was not my intention to single out Novavax. I, I did misspeak. So- they contain either the mRNA or the DNA to code the spike protein, or in in the case of Novavax, they contain spike protein. Um, But point being that they generate the presence of the spike protein in the body, but it's distributed differently because it's going into the muscle versus the the mucous membranes, especially the respiratory tract is with the virus. So one of my goals was to say, if we look at something like long lasting vaccine side effects, and we look at long COVID, where are the overlap in the symptoms and where are the differences? Because that might provide a hint into, uh, into how the mechanisms in terms of things generated by the spike protein or things generated by the immune response um, are the same or, or differ and give us hints into the mechanisms. And so the, one of the first things that I noted was that in both long COVID and in VERS data, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. If you just look at the total reports in VARES for any coughing disorder and call it cough, for any disorder that involves trouble breathing and call it dyspnea. So you know, dyspnea is like an umbrella category for any type of trouble breathing. You might call it, it's hard to breathe. Or you might call it, I'm breathing at a higher rate or I'm short of breath, I have air hunger or whatever. Dyspnea sort of covers all that. And then you look at fatigue. In both long COVID and post-COVID vaccine side effects, fatigue, dyspnea, and cough are reported in a four to two to one ratio. And I'm like, wow, that's a bizarre similarity. And I don't know what causes that. I mean, it, it could be spurious. So for example, it could be that any respiratory disorder tends to lead to those long lasting side effects in that ratio and that we have a spurious vaccine signal in vares because people are just getting sick after the vaccines and it's not cause and effect, but they're reporting it. That's possible, but it's still remarkable enough to wonder why they correlate that way. And the first thing I wanted to do is know whether they also appear fatigue, cough, uh, fatigue dyspnea, cough, and a four to two to one ratio in the vaccine trials. And what I realized was that no one coughed in the vaccine trials. (laughs) So what we're going to talk about in this segment anyway, is just how it happened that no one coughed in the vaccine trials. And this is a little bit of, um, I'm making a generalization because not every vaccine trial recorded and reported adverse events in the same way. And we can get into the differences, but We can start with a general statement, and then we can look at the Pfizer trial in particular. And then if you want, we can look at some of the other trials. So the general statement is that the vaccine trials used the PCR test to make all COVID symptoms disappear if they were negative on the PCR test by being sucked into the black hole of suspected but not confirmed COVID-19 In which case, those adverse effects never appeared in the trial reports and in general never appear anywhere except exceptions where I believe because Pfizer was given the EUA first, the advisory board for the FDA kind of messed up and discussed in the briefing document the exact suspected COVID figures in a way that Peter Doshi immediately highlighted before the world in the BMJ. To point out one of the major flaws driven by that, where he said, look, the fact that the vaccine had no effect on suspected COVID when suspected COVID was defined by all the COVID symptoms and only reduced the PCR positivity that you had when you felt that you had COVID and the doctor agreed, that should raise our attention to the fact that 95.3% of this suspected COVID was PCR negative. So let me back up again, just for people who aren't following this, and just say that the general way that you reported your COVID symptoms was either you tracked in a diary and someone called you to ask about them on a weekly basis. That happened in Moderna, or in the Pfizer trial, you were just self responsible for if you had this list of symptoms, it was your responsibility to immediately call the whoever was in charge and say, I have one or more of these symptoms that you listed as a COVID symptom. Then you had a telehealth, um, you know, sort of like a Zoom meeting, but in a, in a um, healthcare-based alternative to Zoom. And you talked about your symptoms. If they agreed that you might have COVID, they told you, take that kit that we gave you at the beginning, swab your own nose, mail it in, and we'll see if you have COVID. So if you came with a cough, Or if you came with a fever, or if you came with diarrhea, or if you came with shortness of breath, and you had the telehealth visit, they they said this might be COVID, you swab it. If it's positive, you get counted in the trial reports. If it's negative, you disappear into a black hole. And so we know from the FDA briefing document of the Pfizer trial that there were 3,580 cases of suspected COVID. 95.3% of them were negative. And so when they talk about 95% efficacy of the vaccine, they're talking about the PCR positive portion of that. And if you think about what that means... Okay, can, can I... Yeah, yeah if go I ahead.
0: Stop there for a moment. What's the definition of a disease?
1: Whose definition? I mean, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if there... I'm sure there's official definitions of disease, but um, you know, I, I imagine they would they would be something like anything that causes an interruption of your normal functioning that you need to live a, you know, perform at your tasks in life
0: that causes it or that is it.
1: I mean, I don't know. I I'd be willing to listen to other people's ideas about what defines a disease, but, um, I think some people, some people would take, go ahead. The
0: disease was, was, uh, was a collection of symptoms, right? And that the right. ideology was like a, a separate thing, you know. And oh
1: yeah. Oh, I see where I see where you're going. Right. So, uh, not in vaccine research. Uh, so, vac. <laughs> that the vaccine research has completely departed. Um, completely in in all vaccine research has completely departed from. Uh, testing efficacy of of the clinical expression of a disease and has used a test negative design. So everything we're talking about here is called a test negative design. It was pioneered in 1980 for the pneumococcal vaccine. Uh, It increased in in prevalence among vaccine efficacy studies up through uh, since 1980, but especially in the last decade. Since 2011, 90% of vaccine efficacy studies are test negative case control studies. This is what the CDC uses for COVID, but it's also what is used to test the live polio vaccine in Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, Somalia. What they do is they take tens of thousands of paralyzed children who have the exact clinical phenotype of polio. This isn't just the same symptoms. It's literally, you can show that the same problem in the spinal cord is exactly the same, right? So these are people with with polio type um. Acute flaccid paralysis. And they show that the vaccine's 95% effective against polio by showing that within the paralyzed children, the vaccine is giving you a 95% lower probability of a of a positive stool test for type one or type three polio virus.
0: Okay. So if if you have a vaccine and the number of people receiving the vaccine, um who have the symptoms that had described the disease, if that number goes way up, but there are fewer positive tests, that's called an effective vaccine still. Correct. Okay. So,
1: so listen, so listen, listen, the definition, let me, let me bring this up where, uh, I have, I have a, like a a laid out definition of, um, it's in an article I wrote called Test Negative Case Control Studies Are a Scam. <laughs> and I just want to pull up the... Yeah. So the def- the definition I, of a.
0: I, I like that phrase. I, you know, I, I felt like I should say something like that, but I'm glad that that's the title of your yeah, article. Yeah,
1: okay. So my article on, 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 on Substack is called Test Negative Case Control Studies Are a Scam. And the definition I'm quoting from a paper... By, this was a review from Mark Lippich, who's very, very become very famous as a public health person in COVID, and it is a very strong proponent of t- test-negative case control studies. So the definition of a test-negative design is a design in which, quote, the same clinical case definition is used for enrollment in both cases and controls, and laboratory testing is subsequently used to distinguish which patients were cases and which were controls, right? So this is a case control study where effective is, you know, it makes you be a control basically instead of a case, right? But notice that the word case is used twice there. One is to say that everyone is a case in terms of the clinical case definition. The other case is on, is, is what is determined to use vaccine efficacy, which is you are a case if you test positive and you're a control if you test negative, right? So um, So what listen, why would 90 percent of vaccine efficacy studies since 2011 use a design that controls for the clinical expression of a disease and then bases efficacy on testing negative for the pathogen of interest unless it was implicitly tacitly acknowledged? By the entire vaccine efficacy research community, that vaccines do not excel at changing the clinical expression of disease; they excel at making making you test negative for the pathogen of interest.
0: Right. Yeah. My thought was um, once you change the definition of what a, of what disease means for the purpose of this form of of test design, um, it, it's a game, and any game. Uh, gets gamed right yeah any type of process that you set up that is not the the fundamental thing that you're working toward right um whether it's a workplace you know you set up incentives for sales and then suddenly you have people who make sales that may not be as productive sales but they're they're padding their income because of the incentive system right uh, you, you create rules and systems get gamed, and that that feels like what's going on here. Um, the worry, well, you know, the, the ultimate ahead. worry is that's intentional, and that it was a process that was, you know, once it was put in place, it was studied with the goal, perhaps even.
1: Well, I mean that that look that has to be the case because look what happened. So that that was pioneered as a a type of case control study, and if you look at reviews on this. There are, various, um, there are various justifications around the convenience of the sampling. And this is something that you don't bring into randomized controlled trials. Like part of the reason you do observational studies of any type, especially a case control study, is because it's so easy to do the sampling. Like case control study, you just pick people who have a disease, you pick people who don't or whatever, Um, You don't have to pick people prospectively and follow them like in a prospective cohort study. You don't have to have an, an enormous apparatus to blind and randomly allocate things, right? So the randomized controlled trials are where you do what's totally not convenient at all because you are prioritizing getting the highest quality information you can, right? And yet all of the vaccine randomized controlled trials borrowed the test negative design originally justified on convenience from the lowest quality type of observational study which is a case control study and they became test negative randomized controlled trials so that this is exactly what you would expect if they were looking at those results and said wow using tests for the pathogen of interest, we have stumbled upon the fact that we can make products that make us billions of dollars that do nothing to affect the clinical expression of disease because they alter testing for the pathogen of interest. And if you look at the design of all of the COVID vaccine trials, what they did was they waited until you had symptoms. You became a case of COVID-like illness because you had the symptoms of COVID. Then you got tested right so once you became a case of covid like illness that was when you got tested and that is when a negative test defined the efficacy of the vaccine against the test within the population of people with the clinical expression of the of the disease
0: Okay, I'm glad. I'm I'm really glad I'm talking with you. I wish I talked with you a year ago, um, because I'll tell you what my thoughts were going through the trial. And I have uh, less experience than you do with with reading these trial papers. But you know, when I read through, um, there were several things that I noticed. One was, well, you know, aside from this conversation, one was, hey, you've got this disproportionate number of people in the vaccine arm who were excluded from the final data, and that that was enough to overwhelm the effect size. So that felt problematic from the get-go, you know, what's going on there. Aside from that, um, it it bothered me that we were talking about, uh, you know, presence of the virus, according to these tests, at least supposedly, and we'll talk about that, um, rather than the actual disease itself. And, and, And I thought, you know, had something shifted since I learned, you know, basic biology and, and yeah, and and maybe it has, and maybe there are reasonable reasons for it, but uh, I, I did a little bit of research and went back and found even that um, in 2015, the WHO changed the way that diseases were named. And then all of a sudden, now we have this disease that is named after one particular etiology, which feels like it is, it's obtusely obscuring the possibility of another etiology. It's almost like this change in, in naming was designed for this pandemic.
1: I think they pioneered that with the polio vaccine, because, you know, if, if you look at, like, I live in New York City, I grew up in Massachusetts, I don't know anyone who was paralyzed as a child with the clinical expression of, of polio. And yet, if you look where, these, where the live oral polio vaccine is used in the developing world, these Studies that I was talking about earlier—they are—they easily enroll tens of thousands of of paralyzed children with this with this with this disease expression. And so, you know, I, I and if you look at that at at the papers, like, and this is it's well accepted. If you go to like uh up to date, which is what cl- what clinicians widely use as the best uh subscription website for staying up to date with their clinical practice and the new information that comes up. And so they're an, they're an excellent you know mainstream reference, right? If you look up acute flaccid paralysis, they tell you that, you know, this is what used to be called polio. But now we call polio acute flaccid paralysis that's caused by the polio virus, because we discovered 10 or 15 other things that cause what used to be called polio, right? And so in order to say that the vaccine has eradicated polio, you you know you it's apparently eradicated in the developed world, but it's not at all eradicated in the developing world if you're looking at the clinical expression of the disease. you know but the wild the type 1 and type 3 wild polio virus, you know, the vaccine's very close to eradicating that in in the developing world, just not just not the tens of thousands of children that are still getting uh, the clinical expression of that.
0: But okay. so I, I when I when I okay, my thought process led me to try a naming convention like type two COVID, right? And and I, I wasn't sure if I was going to you know get be able to get this to take off, but it made sense to me when I saw that um, that you know some of these post vaccine. Injuries looked an awful lot like COVID. Um, I, I thought, well, why aren't we calling them Type Two COVID? Right? That that would at least clue us into the fact that the spike protein might be involved in both, right? And that I don't they-
1: know if you did this on purpose, but the the what the vaccine, uh, t- the vaccine type live oral polio virus is Type Two polio virus. And so if you find type 2 polio virus in the stool of someone who is vaccinated and they have polio, then you know they have vaccine-induced polio. So it's quite funny that you use so type I, 2. I, for I, that. I, I didn't
0: that. I did not know that. I did not know that. It just made sense to me. Right. right. Yeah.
1: In, the, in, the va- in these vaccine trials, if, if, if anyone tests positive for type 2, they're excluded from the efficacy calculation because... You know, they, they don't say in the method section we excluded them because we know the vaccine caused their illness. They just say, you know, if we discover type two polio virus, we excluded. There was five percent of the paralyzed children had type two virus, so that we excluded them. Um, now we have these unexplained
0: lopsided exclusions uh, in the, uh, and you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this up. Um, so, so I just
1: I just want to quickly co- make one quick comment on something you said earlier. In, in these vaccine trials, we're not really looking at infection instead of clinical expression of disease. Only the AstraZeneca trial gave PCR tests to people who weren't symptomatic. Only there in some of the AstraZeneca trials do we have a, a general estimate of the uh, efficacy of the vaccine against the total PCR positivity. In all of the other trials and in, in, in the, even in the AstraZeneca trial, the, the primary endpoint was PCR positivity if you were a COVID-like illness case, right? So it's we didn't care about infection. We only cared about PCR positivity within the COVID-like illness population. So so it's it's not either of those. It's not we paid attention to infection instead of clinical expression or clinical expression instead of infection. We only wanted to know within the ill population, does the testing rate go down?
0: This is the, uh, uh, Pfizer, the FDA briefing document from the Pfizer trial, December 10th, 2020. And you go down here and we have these uh, people who are excluded from the calculations due to protocol deviations. You know, we don't have any explanation for that. Even in the Pfizer document dumps that have been coming out of the Aaron Siri FOIA, we still have no indication as to what this means. And the the lopsided differential between these numbers is greater than the differential between the COVID cases between the two arms. Now, furthermore, there were thousands of suspected cases of COVID that tested negative. And had they not tested negative for the virus, if we had considered those the disease, then the efficacy numbers would have been very, very small, no matter how you look at them. It
1: it would have been 9%, and it would not have been statistically significant. Moreover, this was for a two-month period, which is when the efficacy of the vaccine against testing positive is at its prime. And so overall, we might have seen even a flip of that to negative efficacy. But at the two-month mark, based on the numbers in this briefing document, it would be 9% and not statistically significant. Um, I, I do believe that in this Aaron Siri data dumps, uh, I believe a month or two ago we got a list of protocol exclusions, and they were uh, I I didn't analyze them in great detail, but a lot of the a lot of them were for like participant received a different COVID vaccine during the trial and and stuff like that. It was it was quite um, it, it it's very interesting, but uh, anyway. But um, I, you know, I think that, I think for, for the individual case uh,
0: numbers that I could go read now. I wasn't aware of this.
1: I I don't know if they have. I believe what they have is like this is the reason, and this is the count for that reason. It, it's it's, it's it's real hard to find because the there are so many files and they're not named very clearly. But uh, um, yeah, this
0: isn't organized. Like I can't find a place where there are three hundred seventy-two.
1: No, I believe there's a PDF where the the PDF is the protocol exclusions, and it and it just lists it just itemizes them. I believe that came out a, about a month ago. But did, um,
0: does it itemize them per case or does it itemize um, per type of, exclusion per type of, per, per type of per, exclusion? per type
1: of exclusion. So like, you know, 341 um, people were excluded for a reason X. Uh, I, th- I think it might um, it might. Also, then itemize them in a in a uh, like uh, participant code per person. I, I'm not sure. I, I'll, I know that I tweeted something about it, so it's it's possible that I can pull up that uh, the link to that by by searching uh, excluded from me on Twitter. But um, but but anyway, I, I you know I think I think the. This, this is going to take a while. Before I do that, um, I just you know just, just to drill home this, this sort of like the reason we started talking about this. so if you if you look at the Pfizer trial, um, they defined COVID symptoms as, as fever, cough, shortness of breath, chills, uh, muscle pain, loss of taste or smell, sore throat, diarrhea, or vomiting. And so any of those symptoms that were considered possibly vaccine induced, um, you know, acute effects. And these were fever, chills, muscle pain, vomiting, and diarrhea. Those were collected in a reactogenicity subset of 8,000 people out of 43,000 people for seven days. Any of the other COVID symptoms, such as coughing or shortness of breath, they were either sucked into the definition of COVID or they just disappeared. So for example, um, the protocol says that if anyone experienced fever, cough, shortness of breath, sore throat, wheezing, sputum production, nasal congestion, nasal dis- discharge, loss of taste or smell, um, and and for the fever, they were required to measure their temperature with a thermometer every single night, um, then they had to report. That COVID, right, and so that is a as a as a potential COVID system. So we have three thousand five hundred eighty cases of COVID-like illness that we know of from that briefing document. Ninety five point three percent of them tested negative for COVID. That leaves three thousand four hundred twelve PCR negative COVID-like illness cases. And so you ask, where is the coughing and shortness of breath, and it. The words coughing and the words shortness of breath do not occur in any of the Pfizer two-month or six-month trial reports except as the definition of COVID. So we literally have 3,400 people that we know of that had some distribution of coughing and shortness of breath. Probably coughing was the most commonly reported thing. And that just disappeared into that into that black hole. And so I am going to write this up and, and call it why no no one coughed in the vaccine trials. But- Anyway, um, you know, that's, that's the key point there. Okay, so I think we I might be able to track down this, this um, exclusion document, but I'm not sure.
0: Okay, so we were talking about gaming the system. Is it possible that the vaccines could be designed in such a way that they interfere with the testing process? They interfere with the PCR testing in some way.
1: Yeah, this is this is a really interesting topic, and I I can only hypothesize about it. I I have made a very long article called "Explaining the Hospitalization Paradox" up on Substack that is geared at trying to trying to explain this exact thing. My hypothesis is that be uh, because. So what happens, you know, if you, if you, if you have a natural infection, what happens is it hits your mucosal membranes first. And if you are naive to it, you don't have any um previous exposure and in reality no one's truly naive to covid in the sense that there's cross-reactive antibodies from cold viruses and other stuff um or you know or perhaps other related viruses in the in the swarm theory that you've been talking about. But but you know, point is if you don't if you are naive to like specific antibodies that you can make to that virus then you're going to take some time to develop iga antibodies that are non-inflammatory but do bind to the spike protein to the nucleocapsid protein and to anything else that the immune system associates with that virus to clear it out of your nose and this is where people are testing nasal swabs right if if you have not been infected you've been vaccinated you get a intramuscular injection that generates a systemic IgG response. Totally different. IgG antibodies are intrinsically inflammatory, unlike IgA antibodies, and they're in your blood. They are not in your nose. Now, the studies suggest that IgG antibodies do leak from your blood into your nose after they get up above a certain high threshold. But if you have a very high threshold of, of IgG antibodies that you need to have to leak into your nose... You have to have a lot of inflammation already because IgG antibodies are intrinsically inflammatory, right? So, I believe that the vaccines, you know, if you've been if you've been uh, two dose vaccinated, then your IgG antibodies are generally not like going to be super super high, especially after the like initial peak. But if you get a breakthrough infection, they go up ten x at least. Right. So what happens is as soon as you get a breakthrough infection, infection, your immune system is on the alert to ramp up these inflammatory antibodies that then spill over in great quantity into the nose. They bind the virus there, prevent it from replicating, and prevent you from getting a PCR test in that mechanism more quickly, but at the cost of a much greater degree of systemic inflammation. And so you you know, you may or may not be clearing the virus from your lungs, but you're, you appear to be clearing it from your nose at a faster rate. And it is interesting to consider whether, whether, there are other, um, whether there are other parallels to that that would differentiate viral replication in the nose from testing positive. But I do believe the most parsimonious explanation is that you are generating a quicker Um, negative result in your nose by a greater delivery of antibodies that stop viral replication and therefore stop um, mRNA copies from being picked up by PCR at the expense of a more inflammatory disease state?
0: Okay. So it may be that the vaccines are specifically (laughs) suited to clear SARS-CoV-2 out of your nose specifically, but perhaps not the rest of your epithelial layer. Are there are, are there any of the um, studies at all any, uh, that that test lung lavage versus uh, nasal swab to sort of see that differential? I know that early during the pandemic, I did see you know like uh, yeah animal studies um, where they were doing you know like sort of first testing of, of various medicines. Like hydroxychloroquine, there was uh, one out of France uh, with uh, monkeys, where uh, macaques, where they did, uh, you know, look at viral loads, uh, fecal samples, lung lavage, um, you know, uh, nasopharyngeal, and they looked at the difference between these, and you could see the rates of decrease of viral load were different depending on which, you know, swabs you looked at.
1: Yeah, I so. I definitely know that there were studies on the viral load in the lungs versus the nose um over the time course of the disease. But I don't think there have been any studies that address the thing I was just talking about, which is when you're vaccinated, how the threshold in the blood is required to spill over into the nose. Like that study didn't look at lung antibodies. And so I don't I don't think I don't know of any studies that would be able to say when you're vaccinated, this is the rate at which IgG spills into the lung mucosa. I mean, it, it obviously it must in Would the sense be that you doing that
0: research, if you were the vaccine manufacturer, if you felt but, but my way. point is,
1: I have seen it with the nose and saliva. So, so I think it's just it's way easier to get. You know, if you have healthy people, um, you're going to have an easier time just. Getting a nasal sample or a saliva sample than you are getting a, like a deep lung sample because if they're not coughing up anything, then how are you going to get it? It's it's going to be more invasive and it, and, and people aren't going to sign on to it. So I mean I get your point. Like the the um, I don't think the study I saw on the nose uh, and saliva versus the blood I, I don't think that was a vaccine sponsored study and it. Uh, definitely came out way after the vaccine trials, and so it's you know it's it's pretty clear that they they systematically ignored the mucosa because look, I mean it it's it was well predicted and known before the vaccines came out that they were not going to produce a neutralizing response in the mucosa because um, or that they weren't going to reliably produce a a, a, a mucosal response um, because they aren't delivered to the mucosa. And it was, you know, it was already well understood in flu vaccine trials that you have to deliver vaccines intranasally if you want to put a put a complete stop to replication that can spread the virus, right? So I don't think that you are getting a nasal response that is reliably stamping it out immediately. I think you are just, you're bringing the negative uh, nose response you're pulling it into an earlier part of the disease process than it would have otherwise occurred. Um, but okay. yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's more, more to it and it's, but it, you know, it's definitely the case that the vaccine research has, has systematically avoided looking at the mucosa uh, because they knew it wouldn't perform very well there.
0: Okay. I've got on my screen. Um, I, I, I've got a couple of these saved in different locations, but um, you know, this is a snapshot from a, uh, I believe this is from the CDC's website, where uh, they took a look at people who were hospitalized with COVID like illness. And you can see there were more people hospitalized with COVID like illness who had been fully vaccinated than who right. were unvaccinated. Um, but a far smaller portion of them tested positive. Now, yeah, that's that's and, the same
1: design as the vaccine trials
0: and, and, and roughly, um, you, know, you know, you can see this vaccine efficacy computation of 86 percent. Um, roughly the same number of people were vaccinated at this point. Like it was this was from a time when when you can really just kind of take the ratios of these numbers to kind of see. So it may be that we have vaccine efficacy according to one specific definition of disease. But if we just slightly alter the definition of disease to the one that makes sense in terms of total impact to our health, if if we just swap definitions, suddenly we have zero or possibly negative vaccine efficacy.
1: Right. If you if you look at the definition of COVID-like illness in that study, they're using electronic health record uh diagnostic codes that include respiratory failure. You know, so it's it's not like and they're not commenting on who's mild and who's severe but they're all hospitalized right so the 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 hospitals are according to that study the hospitals are full of mostly pcr negative covid like illness that's majority vaccinated and 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 what they and in that i th- i believe that's the same paper that that i was looking at in which case the efficacy for having a booster shot of the mRNA vaccines was 95% against testing positive. The headline that comes from that is an mRNA booster shot was 95% effective against COVID-19 associated hospitalizations. Anyone who hears that sentence thinks that, oh, if I have an an mRNA booster shot and I get COVID, I'm 95% less likely to wind up in the hospital. But that literally is like the inverse of what they what they showed. They showed that if you were in the hospital, you were 95% protected against testing positive.
0: Protected against testing positive. Correct.
1: Correct. And so the question is, if you're in the hospital with respiratory failure, is is the greatest comfort you could hear that because you've been vaccinated, you tested negative?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
1: imagine the sleight of hand involved to make a headline out of that that this is 95% effective against COVID-19 associated hospitalizations. The sleight of hand is that the key part of that is not hospitalization. It's COVID-19 associated. COVID-19 associated hospitalization means that you tested positive. Right. So you're being you're hospitalized and you're protected against being associated with COVID-19 through a positive BCR test.
0: So protection from categorization.
1: And so and so look, this, this disappearance of coughing from the Pfizer trial, right? In the same way, they have disappeared the main type of person in the hospital when they're talking about the rate of COVID. Every single case where they talk about the rate of COVID-19 associ- associated hospitalizations or deaths or all of the COVID data, right? The, the dirty little secret of that data is... We're ignoring the 79% of these hospitalizations and deaths that were COVID like illness, but tested negative on PCR. Yeah. If there are 40,000,
0: amongst 40,000 people, there are going to be some coffers. It really, oh, sure. at, at, at essentially any point in time. So if, if something is going on and the coffers have disappeared, then there is some sort of a, uh, you know, uh, there, there is a categorization issue in this kind of, this kind of demonstrates that um, uh, very plainly, I think, for people who still who, who haven't wrapped their minds around how definitions can be used to create the the appearance of you know medicine that works. Um, there is there is there anything outside of vaccine research that looks like this?
1: I don't know of anything honestly I mean, I had never heard of a test negative case control study and i've been I've looked at drug research quite a bit you know because i've just out of an interest of whether dietary cholesterol causes heart disease, for example i you know for the last uh, ten to twenty years I've paid attention to statin trials and things like that and you know i a lot of drug research has been heavily criticized for the types of questions that they ask. But I never in in two decades of paying attention to drug research have I ever seen anything so obfuscatory and so opposite day as this you know it's just, it's just like you've entered a a magical wonderland where everything is upside down. You know it, it re- I've, I've never seen this in drug trials. You brought I up- mean, I think uh, vaccines should be classified as drugs, but I've never seen this in non-vaccine pharmaceutical trials.
0: So you brought up statins and um, and what is it that they...
1: Uh... Well, statins lower cholesterol. So I guess an ex- the closest parallel you could come up with for statins is where is where cholesterol levels in the blood are used as a surrogate marker for heart disease. But but the thing is, in statin trials, they—it's not the case that they've just systematically used cholesterol as a surrogate marker like that. They—they they have used as the primary endpoint in the biggest trials, uh, heart disease mortality. And so there are criticisms like you didn't give enough. To the
0: against there, were, a lot of people are like, you know, I can just take my vitamins, right? what what's the the main competitor to statins just on the vitamin shelf uh
1: i mean honestly the main competitor to statins is a is a low saturated fat low fat diet um you know if if you look at those diets that came out of um that well, came I, out of i'll go ahead i'll go ahead, yeah. I'll
0: go ahead and, uh, and insert what i was thinking uh, niacin oh so, uh, well i, I yeah i think i think
1: ni- niacin yeah, I mean niacin. You can you can use pharmacologically at very high doses to lower cholesterol. I think a, a safer alternative is pantothine, which is a f- specific form of, of vitamin B five uh, that is is somewhat structured differently from pantothenic acid, the most common okay. form of that.
0: I, I wanted to bring this into the conversation though because I, I I'm not I didn't do a deep dive yet on statins. I started to last year because I actually had a doctor. Um, I, my cholesterol was a little high. It was the only thing that I, I you know tested badly on, um, I'm not sure if I should think of it that way, but uh, uh, you know, it was the first time I, I'd been told, hey, your cholesterol is a little bit high, you should go on these statins. I started doing some reading, and that um, statins were promoted as being better than niacin. Like some of, some of the studies on efficacy pitted them against niacin, but the industry invented its own different version of niacin to test against. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: No, I might've read about that in the past, but I I don't recall it right now.
0: Okay. And and I I, I can't have this conversation well enough yet. So maybe I'll just, I'll send you some stuff. Well,
1: look, so, so there's, there's, there's much that could be used to criticize the statin trials. One of the, one of the, I mean, among the criticisms is in in prevention among people who don't have existing heart disease the number needed to treat meaning the number of people you need to treat with a statin to lower one heart disease death is is exceedingly high um you know much higher than what typically drugs would have in the past um and another another criticism is that they you know have 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 very much struggled to find an effect on total mortality because people seem to die of something else instead of heart disease in the statin trials. And, uh, you know, cancer is one of those and there are some plausible mechanisms where statin critics will say, well, I mean, even accidents, right? Like in some of these trials, like the, in the, the rebalancing of deaths was like more people had driving accidents and stuff like that. You can actually make a case that statins cause driving accidents because Interfering with cholesterol synthesis is going to hurt your neurological control. So any type of um, any any anything that could be attributed to your cognitive performance or your motor control could could plausibly be attributed to statins. And so they squeal around these no effect on total mortality um, by coming up with these very complicated. It's, it's sort of like the FDA briefing for the authorization of the Novavax trial reported that the Novavax trial last year had one death in each group. The FDA authorization document on June 7th, 2022, I'm reading this document and I'm like, surely they must have voted against authorization and the administration overrode them. But no, they voted uh, no, no votes against one abstention. So they, the FDA found the follow-up to the trial, Novavax more than doubled the risk of death 11 deaths in the vaccine group, um, six in the placebo group. The deaths in the um, vaccine group inc- included five cardiac arrests, one myocardial infarction, one cerebrovascular accident, which is um, blood clots and bleeding, uh, basically blood clots and hemorrhaging in the brain. And so they go at great length to justify why each of these cases. Did not resemble the heart inflammation that is known to be attributable to the vaccines from myocarditis and pericarditis, and explain why these cardiac deaths excess in the vaccine group are not related to the vaccine, and therefore it doesn't matter that it doubled the total mortality rate, so more than doubled. Um, you know, in the STAN trials, you you find this same squeamishness squealing around the the lack of effect on total mortality by at length going through why all these deaths could not be attributable to the statins. Whereas the heart disease deaths just automatically, if they go down there, that's, a, that victory is attributed to the statins with much less critical analysis. Um, you know, so the reality is they've been scamming around this total mortality issue forever on drugs, Yeah, but that's, that's very different. That's exceedingly different from what they're doing with vaccines, right? So if they were, if 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 they did it with the statin trials, what they do with the vaccines, they would they would say there was no effect on myocardial infarction. There, the trial was too small to detect any significant number of deaths from myocardial infarction. So we don't have any mortality, any cardiac mortality data the total deaths were not impacted. So there's no effect on all cause mortality, but that's because the trial wasn't designed for it. But what we can show is that among people who had myocardial infarction, the statins were 95% effective at bringing their cholesterol within the normal limit. And therefore (laughs) statins will save billions of heart disease deaths. That's that is what they did with the vaccine trials, and they have not done anything that corrupt and wild in the statin research. Right. Like, the statin research is corrupt, but it's not that corrupt. This is a, this is a level above what they do in, in research on other drugs.
0: Yeah. You know, a lot of people, once they started to be concerned about, you know, uh, vaccine deaths said, hey, look, we have to go to the all-cause mortality deaths in order to study this. And, you know, what I'm going to say is the analog to that is risk-benefit analysis, right? Um, when a trial appears to have a debatable definition or conclusion over efficacy, it should be sort of judged at a next level, which would be risk-benefit analysis, at which point you bring in all of these results, what happens to everyone. And you can't say, okay, these 12 people died from heart problems. But, you know, we don't count that because it's not part of what we're calculating. You know, the the way they're calculating things, you know, just to kind of put an extreme spin on it, just to make the point is you might have a drug and maybe it kills 90 percent of people, but everybody left has no heart problems. I actually I actually
1: I actually (laughs) think the final phase of drug development should require that as the primary endpoint: all-cause mortality, all-cause morbidity. Some, I, I feel, I feel like just an we,
0: overall risk-benefit analysis, a holistic risk-benefit analysis.
1: Right, but from the trials, right. So what they did with the vaccine trials is they designed the trials to not be able to answer those questions, so that they could use incredibly confounded observational data in order to answer that question, right? And so you wind up with this case that i know you've been working on with the education and wealth confounders where the covid vaccines protect against dying from everything in the observational literature um, or just you know overall they protect against non covid mortality right but you can't get even a hint of that in the vaccine trials and so i think the i think the final phase of of rcts for any development of any drug is 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 to say, okay, in the in the in the first two phases, we used our endpoint of interest to show the path by which we expect this drug to increase the overall quality of life, lifespan, and health span for this population. But in our final analysis, we need to show in a randomized manner that there is some composite metric of overall health span quality of life and and lifespan that is improved by this drug right so the mechanism of interest and the and the endpoint of interest in drug development is is a sig- is signifying the path by which you improve quality of life and lifespan yeah, but the result is that you actually do improve quality of life and lifespan
0: and and I think this is this is a little what's freaking people out is that um, what we see when we track uh, the degree of correlation from county to county of what you might think of as vaccine efficacy, you know how how many uh, um, uh, COVID deaths do you have, uh, and then looking at the the vaccinated portion of the county, the correlations track uh, for you know whether or not a person was vaccinated, vax complete, boosted, whatever. Uh, percent over 85 vaccinated all that tracks with the proportion of people in the county who have a bachelor's degree and is anti-correlated or you know or, or, that's a negative correlation but that's you know what you would expect if if uh, the vaccines give a an advantage in mortality or benefit from an advantage in mortality from people who are educated and i hypothesized that you um, that uh, you know, education and wealth and health are basically all kind of tied. Education and wealth, obviously. I, I think wealth and health, obviously. It's weird that there isn't a lot of research out there. There is something called um, uh, health effect that I've read in several studies where people have, have pointed out, and specifically with to vaccines, like flu vaccines, that uh, somebody pointed out that if you took out uh, what looked like a health effect, that flu vaccines went from looking I think like 50% effective to looking 0% effective. And and once uh, people started studying like one location at a time, like in Michigan State, they found zero efficacy in the flu vaccines.
1: Yeah, I I think there's a a few underlying uh, things going on, but one interesting point that uh, Robert Sapolsky has made, I haven't read his book on stress, but I listened to his interview with Peter Atia, and he was making the point that you see this correlation between wealth and health within a country, but you don't see it when you're looking at, um, you don't, you don't see it in a more global context where you're saying like, do the rich countries have better health than the poor countries? And you especially don't see it when you're looking at like hunter gatherers who would be, who would be quantified as like infinitely poor um, compared to people in rich countries. And so his hypothesis to explain that disconnect or that disparity in in the the way in which you're looking at it is that that stress uh, there there's a lot of stress that's generated from comparing yourself to others in a way that hurts your that your um self-esteem and morale and so that and i think it's more than this but what he was saying is that in a rich country where you have enormous disparities in in wealth People who are poor walk around with a constant sense of inferiority because they're seeing people nearby them who have much more than they have. But I, as you just said, there are other metrics of access and habits that correlate with wealth and education. And I think one of those could probably just be called a health consciousness, um, that, you know, health consciousness, or con- it probably correlates with uh, conscientiousness on the Big Five psychological traits, but it you know, manifest in a much more health-specific way. If you have access to better, better doctors and better healthcare, et cetera. But also if you are, you know, constantly taking care of yourself um, in various ways. I think what's interesting is if you could find ways to dissociate the specific avenues through which most health conscious people practice their health from their health consciousness, uh, it would be very interesting. So one way that people have done that is when they're looking at meat eating, instead of looking at normal meat eaters versus vegetarians they look at meat eaters and vegetarians who shop at health food stores and so these disparities in the health between meat eaters and vegetarians in general disappear when you control for health consciousness by limiting to people who shop at health food stores you know and most of those vegetarians are probably going to health food stores so the real you know it's probably not health food store that's causing the disparity in health it's it's probably like whatever makes you want to shop at a health food store. So I think a lot of these things with flu vaccine is sort of like flu vaccine is a mainstream expression of health consciousness. But if you took someone who was very health conscious and was opposed to the flu vaccine on health grounds, those people who express their health consciousness in a different way probably also are very healthy in a way that rivals them or perhaps exceeds them. Because it's not the flu vaccine necessarily that's making you healthy. It's this general attitude where in 5,000 ways that are all each individually very hard to measure, you are a health conscious person. Um, you know, but then also just having just access, of course, to better healthcare is a, is a significant thing.
0: Yeah. And, and this is the positive side. On the negative side, um, being impoverished means uh, spending less time with your family while you're struggling to spend more hours working and all of those things. I actually think that that the effect has more to do with the things that you lack in life than like conscientiousness is, is more like a baseline of what happens when you do not have excess stresses, right? Um, I, like I, I know that I am personally, you know, much more conscious you know whether it's health conscious or even just getting my chores done you know, any any aspect of daily life when i have uh less stresses that eat up all my time right and and it, it's very easy to imagine that uh you know people for whom the lack of time to be conscientious becomes a chronic condition and that's that's my personal strongest hypothesis um, but I, I bet I bet
1: vacations uh, are very inversely correlated with mortality.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would bet absolutely. Yeah, uh, the time and you know people talk about like you know having a different tank for things. You know, I always like that analogy, uh, but I think that it relates to stress levels. If you have some tank that is constantly depleted, whether it's time with your family, time spent not having to work, you know, when uh, a lot of times when people tell me you know certain forms of meditation. Or something like that, lower stress, this, that, or the other. I, I always ask, well, have, have they have they run an experiment where you tell people you can do whatever you want for 15 minutes, right? And uh, and not to knock meditation, right? But to, to point out that um, any time that we get to take a break uh, is you know reduction of stress. Any time that we get to choose our own time or or plan to go on an adventure, um, yeah, these are very associated with with health. What sorry, with wealth and And we can see in the observational data with the vaccines, we can see that that effect, it just, it tracks the vaccine efficacy. And in the vaccine safety data link, the fact that there is efficacy for non-COVID mortality, not just a little, but in some different demographics, it was as high as 72%, right? that's that is highly suggestive of hey more people were vaccinated who have you know lower stress that would cause these other forms of death
1: yeah and you know particularly with the mrna vaccines they the both both of those trials have non significant increases in mortality mm-hmm. where you know that if in if observationally if the mrna vaccines specifically share in that correlation of of decreased total mortality or non-COVID mortality, you know it has to be spurious in some way because it just directly conflicts with the trial results. You know, either that or just no, the trials were designed in a terrible way that didn't allow you to capture the real effect. Either way, that's a problem. Um,
0: but the trials um, were, you know, more likely balanced than the vaccine safety data link. Um, right. Far.
1: Yeah. Ex- so, exactly. You have to. You have to try to. Uh, synthesize the trials with the observational data in a way that makes sense. I mean, just just like this nonsense that the vaccines will protect you against severity once you've been infected, they invented this a whole cloth after Delta came around and the vaccine efficacy against testing positive started to wane. The vaccine trials, you know, they have the same efficacy against any case versus a severe case or a hospitalized case. And so those trials do not support at all that once you test positive, you have a better prognosis. They support that once you test positive, you have the same prognosis um, no matter what.
0: And and I just want to point this out. Uh, when I looked at the DMED data, one of the things that I, I did was I took the cases, oh, yeah, right. the hospitalizations divided by the cases, to as a metric of severity, and found that uh, severity was actually going up as um, as vaccines vaccines increased right up until the mandates in August in 2021. So you know, once we have a chance to look at population, and, and you can see it in every single group, really. You know, the demographics are broken out, but of course, you know, the, the military is a much more uniform group than than all of, uh, you know, the general population. So we do not see, you know, in, in good data, we do not see a reduction in severity. Um, and, and you know, for anybody who might say, well, maybe maybe cases were just resulting in more hospitalization now, we, we you know, case fatality rates were generally going down during the pandemic, uh, hospitalization rates per case were generally going down a little bit at a time, except during vaccine rollout.
1: Um, that so does- the in the observational data what what you do see is that and the basis for making this claim is that once the effect on positive testing started to wane the the effect on a hospitalized case just stayed where it was before and so you know one interpretation and the one that they selected for that is that the vaccines were Always designed to, to keep you out of the hospital once you're infected, which is total BS. That's not in the protocols. It's not in the trial reports. It's a lie. It's fabricated, right? But, you know, they say this was their purpose and this is what they're still doing their primary job, which is to keep you out of the hospital. The dirty little secret is that, as we talked about before, the only way that they're keeping you out of the hospital is when you magically make all the PCR negative COVID like illness from the hospital that's majority vaccinated disappear, right? So it's a complete the the, the problem is that the uh, definition of a case is BS and the definition of a COVID-19 associated hospitalization is just this illusion created by the way the PCR test makes all the PCR negative disease of that exact type disappear. But I have a a hypothesis. I I just want to throw this out
0: real quick too. From what I'm seeing worldwide, uh, when I look uh, from nation to nation and, and look for the data, it looks like most nations' their healthcare systems are more stressed now than they ever were during 2020. 2022 is like the most stressed year worldwide for hospital systems, and huh. in some countries, um, it, it's breaking down right now. Wow, this that's is breaking down, not 2020, not pre-vaccine. So
1: that's very um, interesting. Yeah, so we're I
0: on the news soon.
1: So, I if if anyone wants to go into the weeds on this, my article explaining the hospitalization paradox on Substack uh, goes into this in great detail. But I have a hypothesis as to why, specifically after Delta and you know six months out from the beginning of the rollout, we start to see this this disparity between COVID nineteen associated hospitalizations and COVID nineteen positive tests or cases, and I, I believe that the I believe this is best explained where if you are vaccinated and you get COVID, a negative test actually becomes a marker for a more severe disease. And the the logic is as follows: when you have a very high antibody response. And you are more prepared to expect the virus, the amount of IgG that leaks out into your nose to neutralize that virus is, you know, it might be very inflammatory or maybe it's not.
0: Yeah. But once it becomes disorder,
1: once it becomes harder to get a negative test, the threshold of the inflammatory response that you need to generate so much IgG systemically to leak into the nose and neutralize the virus to get a negative test becomes greater. And so therefore you're more likely to be a hospitalized case because your inflammatory reaction is is so much greater. And so I think think what's happening is a lot of vaccinated people are actually getting COVID, but by the time they get into the hospital, they have so much inflammatory systemic IgG response that it's actually generated a negative test while they're in the hospital, but at the expense of being in the hospital with COVID-like illness, right? So You know, I do think a portion of this PCR negative COVID-like illness in vaccinated people is other things like vaccine side effects and spike protein induced COVID-like illness and things like that. But I do think a portion of it is just people who got COVID and got a negative test at the expense of more inflammation, not because of an unexpected side effect of the vaccine, but because of the actual design of the vaccine in trying to give you this neutralizing response through a systemic inflammatory IgG response instead of the normal way you encounter a virus, which is to generate a non-inflammatory IgA response in your nose.
0: So to make an analogy, pumping up IgG antibodies in order to try to protect the epithelial layer might be like having a home uh, in, in an urban environment, leaving the doors and windows open all the time. However, at two in the morning, every morning, you have a loud alarm that goes off so that you jump up, grab your shotgun, and <laughs> practice defending your home. Overall, this is you know, you you may have fewer intruders successfully invade your home, but the cost of doing this is going to be destructive to your health. Maybe just closing the doors and windows is is a better way to.
1: <laughs> to treat the it's That's an a pretty good analogy
0: yeah. <laughs> um and and we are seeing um you know uh, people uh like in the military data uh, again you know i i love being to look through the military data because you have this demographically uniform population um but you can see uh you know the number of immuno- immunological disorders just you know reported skyrocket like they doubled um in 2021 relative to previous years in terms of uh, first-year reporting, you know, doubling that's substantial. That's worth looking at. And it suggests to us that the framework by which we analyze the trials is entirely wrong. Now, one more thing. I don't know if you saw this or, or, or feel comfortable interpreting in this. The, are you familiar with Jiki Leaks, the anonymous no. account on Twitter, um, no. <laughs> pointed out that if, if you look that uh, some of the trial data had like um, – Uh, Nucleocapsid uh, ant antibody testing or antigen testing. Yeah, and that if you judged by that, there was essentially zero percent efficacy, almost exactly zero percent efficacy.
1: Um, If you, I have seen. Yeah, I've seen the. I've, 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 I had that somewhere in my notes on the trials, but I don't remember which trial. Had that and what the numbers were. Um, so, okay, so in the JNJ trial, um, seroconversion to anti nucleocapsid antibodies had a day 71 in, in a sample of 2,650 people, 18. Asymptomatic infections in the vaccine group and fifty in the placebo group, with a vaccine efficacy of sixty-five point five percent. So I don't know what what trial he was looking at, but the J and J trial had an effect on anti-nucleocapsid antibodies.
0: Right, there was some sort of like a, a an expected um, two and a half times multiplication factor that wasn't included in that computation, and I can't remember. The logic behind that. Um, I, I haven't delved deeply into this one yet, but I,
1: I well, bring it up. I can, yeah, I mean, I can, I'd have to look at, at that argument to know, you know, to, to know what, what they were talking about with that calculation. But what I can say is that if you, the AstraZeneca trial looked at um, total PCR positivity at the end of the trial, and this doesn't capture anti, um, like, infections that didn't occur at that time point, whereas the antinucleocapsid seroconversion would capture any uh, serocon- would capture any past infection during that time point. But it, the efficacy against PCR positivity was around six, uh, 50%, and the efficacy against being a COVID case was around 70%. So what I think is interesting is that the efficacy against PCR positivity is less than the uh, efficacy against being a COVID case, which means that the vaccines are better at giving you a negative PCR test once you've become a COVID-like illness case than they are otherwise. Um, and, I, and I think that, and what that, what that sort of sh- argues is that they're not achieving negative COVID cases by pre- preventing infection, right? That if if they were if they were preventing infection as their primary mechanism of action, they should be best at preventing PCR positivity. And granted, PCR positivity has a very high, you know, the the CT count is forty um, in the trials uh, or in that trial. It's it's generally high across the trials, and so it's capturing a lot of cases where you wouldn't be able to find any culturable virus in the nose. Uh, so you're not, so I wouldn't call this inf- infection. I would cause it, call it PCR positivity, right? Um, call it what it actually is. And go ahead.
0: One more hypothesis before we leave this point behind, because I think that there's one potential explanation that nobody has, is really talking about because we haven't really figured everything out yet. Um, when I talked to Steven Pellick, um, he was on rounding the earth a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he and some colleagues ran a much more broad form of um, like seropositivity study uh, by looking at different, by looking for uh, antibodies to, you know, parts of the virus all over and then doing a statistical analysis to decide which ones you could narrow it to And then came up with a list of like 41 tested, like 276 people. I hope I understand that I have, I've not poured through the paper yet. He sent it to me, Um, but this this is how I understand it. Um, And of those 276 people, 90% of them, this is like middle of 2020, 90% of them had already tested positive for having had, uh, you know, antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, let's suppose for a moment, uh, and and this is something I've hypothesized. In fact, I, I strongly believe that COVID, that, sorry, the that SARS-CoV-2 was circulating substantially before we're being we've been told. Um, I, I think that it was definitely circular. I've seen so much evidence of circulation during 2019 all over the globe in animals, in you know wastewater, in you know uh, seropositivity studies, all kinds of data.
1: I can I can add to that S one antigen found in the blood of people with respiratory illness before COVID.
0: By by the way, in South America, uh, there, there was myocarditis in cows all over the continent in 2019. Just oh. all of a sudden. <laughs> um, so you know, I, I I do think the virus will cause some cases of myocarditis, but I, I kind of want to look at that research. But one thought that I've had is the introduction of the vaccines. Um, isn't masking the virus in cases of COVID-like illness. It is simply causing cases of COVID-like illness because these are people who already had the virus previously and then the vaccine is causing some sort of new immune response that that, that is doing something with the body's defenses where the body has set up defenses for the virus already, the vaccine is introduced and then the two aren't playing well together
1: that that makes better sense in the context of the observational data and matches less with the trials because uh all of the trials screened people for anti-nucleocapsid antibodies at the beginning and there were you know relatively f- small numbers at least who were actually talked about in the trial reports and they generally were included but they were analyzed separately um you know so the, the the primary endpoints of the trials do exclude people with anti-nucleocapsid antibodies but i th- i think you may well be right about the people in the hospital
0: but they weren't finding anything like 90% positivity or you know 90% rates like i i No there
1: were they're were, they were finding hardly anyone having anti-nucleocapsid antibodies at the beginning
0: okay so i'm I, i'm thinking that that might be a poor test for who has or has not had SARS-CoV-2 and you know maybe they know That's, that
1: that's quite possible. I mean, I I think these are none of these tests are are very well validated. Um, I mean, I, I do know that the the uh, antibody tests were validated against pre-pandemic samples, showing a relative absence of them. Although that's also the research that generated the cross-reactivity. Uh, Hypotheses about right. if
0: SARS-CoV-2 and... was circulating in 2019, that would prove that to be a bad test, not prove it to be a good test.
1: Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. If right, it's it's just. I guess what I'm saying is that there is no gold standard, and so we're kind of running around in circles, chasing our tails, because there is no test that is that can be validated as a very good test <laughs> but you but you it's hard to argue against it right because you have all these interdependencies where it is a you know it is or or wasn't like so for example if you just take the the fact that there was the the people who used the uh samoa t- s1 antigen test to look at s1 circulation uh, S1 of spike protein circulation and Moderna recipients also looked at COVID cases and pre-pandemic samples. And they didn't say when the pre-pandemic samples were from. They just said that they had respiratory illnesses and were hospitalized. And what you see is that the S1 antigen is, there's a couple outliers in each group, and, but in general, the trend is that pre-pandemic, if someone was healthy, they did not have S1 antigen circulating in their blood, but if they were sick with a respiratory illness, some of them did, but, but not all of them. And if they had COVID, most of them did, but not all of them, uh, or most of, in their sample, it was very ICU biased, so these were super severe cases, right? But in, in pr- presumably, they don't tell us, presumably also the pre-pandemic samples who were sick since they were hospitalized were also biased in the same way, I don't know. I mean, even that might not be true. Maybe they had more COVID patients who were ICU because it was exceedingly like the majority of hospitalized patients were ICU patients, which is not representative of COVID in general. So maybe the only reason there was a greater propensity to have S1 antigen in the blood was because the sample is so ICU biased compared to the pre-pandemic sample. They don't tell us who is in in the ICU. But my point is, you know, is that telling you that the... Antigen test has so much nonspecific cross-reactivity that it makes it look like the virus was here before, you know, or was the virus here before? And you you just have this endless loop where you have to assume something in order to interpret it. Uh, but what's interesting is that the healthy people from pre pandemic did not have it, right? And so it's it's obviously not total nonspecific cross-reactivity because there's something specific about the, the people with respiratory illness are the ones who had some of it. Um, but my, my point is at somewhere you have to step in and assume something in order to make a model where you can interpret those studies. And there's no way to say like, I've taken my assumptions out of this and this is what it shows. Uh, because at some point you have to assume like, It may have been circulating, or it may not have been. It whatever, but it's a real, you know, cluster f bomb.
0: Yeah, it's it's one of the things that we should look at because if it is indeed the case that authorities knew that uh, SARS-CoV-2 was already circulating pre-pandemic, then if they did go and design and and, uh, come up with a test that would make it look like they were comparing it with 2019 or 2018 data that would be confounded. Um, That could be an intentional way to create this entire system of using the tests to manipulate the appearance of the definition of the disease.
1: Um, Well, the Crimson Contagion scenario planning event was in June of 2019, and Event 201 was, I think, in October. So they were heavily... heavily uh, ramping up pandemic preparedness scenario planning in the six, seven, eight month lead up into COVID circulating or into COVID, the known time when COVID was circulating. So, I mean, it's it's highly suspicious, circumstantial, but highly suspicious.
0: Well, we could, um, I, I enjoy theorizing with you. We could do this all day, but when I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, give you an opportunity uh, uh, to express closing words if you have them, or we can wrap things up. But it's been uh, an interesting conversation. Um, you know, just the strangeness of the disappearance of coughing and dyspnea uh, in, in the data is highly suggestive that somebody created a system to... Smuggle the expression of illness uh, in you know versus the expression of positivity in in sort of two different directions to to separate that and pull the wool over our eyes is that a fair explanation Yeah
1: yeah and I I should I should note for fairness that I uh, in the Moderna trial buried in the supplementary index they do actually have the coughing data. And it generally makes the Moderna trial look exactly like the way the FDA briefing document makes the Pfizer trial look at two months. Because in the Moderna trial, the coughing is slightly higher in the vaccine. Actually, it makes it look worse. The coughing is slightly higher in the vaccine group. And they made dyspnea disappear because for some reason, the Moderna participants were more likely to have a cough than dyspnea, but also they bifurcated dyspnea into multiple subtypes. And so the reports for shortness of breath and difficulty breathing are different, which makes the total dyspnea fall under 1% and therefore not qualified to be in the supplementary appendix because they uh, they used 1% as a threshold. And so 1.1% of people had a cough in the placebo group, 1.2% of people had a cough in the vaccine group. Point being, they you know they did make dyspnea disappear, but they didn't make cough disappear, and it looks exactly like what we think cough should look like. In fact, it's even in a four to one ratio fatigue to cough, which is what you find in the VERS data and which is what you find in the long COVID data. So even the cough appears in the same ratio as you would expect, and it and it gives the same message as the Pfizer. Um, to you know FDA briefing document gives and you know the overall message is this we've known since december 2020 that non pc that pcr negative covid like illness was as an entity was purged from the from the trial reports what we now know from what i've brought forth is that it's not just the entity of covid like illness it's all the specific symptoms down to one so trivial as coughing that was systematically, through the design of the adverse event reporting, collection and reporting, wiped out from knowledge, from the trials. And this is all in service to defining the disease as the test for the pathogen of interest so that you can show 95% efficacy when you have no efficacy against the clinical expression of the disease where you can systematically wipe out knowledge of this by purging anyone who does not test positive and who has the clinical expression of disease from the trial reports and from the headlines about who is in the hospitals. And what we should be demanding is that people who are just as sick, just as admitted to the ICU, just as likely to have respiratory failure and just as dead or just as long hauling, but who test negative on the PCR test have a voice in the data. And and right now they have no voice. And so we're here to give them that voice.
0: Well, thanks for your observations. Thanks for talking with us today. Um, It's been educational.
1: Thank you for having me. It It was great to have this discussion. All right. We'll go ahead and close things up.